This is The Guardian. Today, Ukraine needs billions of dollars to keep fighting Russia. What will happen if it doesn't get the funds? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's incredibly tough. I mean, winter in eastern Ukraine looks like something from a painting by Bruegel. There is ice everywhere, there is snow. The trees look glassy because they're all frozen. Imagine being a soldier in a trench in sub-zero temperatures when a few hundred metres away, the Russian enemy is trying to kill you. Luke Harding's a senior foreign correspondent based in Ukraine. And recently, he's been with the Ukrainian army in the east near Adivka, a city that Russian forces have been trying to capture for almost a decade. One of the commanders showed me a homemade paraffin lamp. It's basically, it's paraffin in a tin with a candle in it. And the soldiers hug these paraffin lamps to keep themselves warm. They can brew cups of tea in them. It's like the First World War. Imagine the First World War at Christmas, apart from the fact that it's the First World War with drones. So far, the Russian troops have failed to break through. But in the past couple of months, they've changed tactics. And now they're sending small groups of soldiers out to find the weaknesses in the Ukrainian line of defence. And what the Ukrainian officers I was talking to were saying was that they are killing large numbers of Russians every day. There are bodies all over the place. But the Russians just keep sending more. To have any hope of succeeding, Ukrainians need money. Tens of billions of dollars of it. They need it not only for military equipment, but also to support their economy, which has been pretty much frozen since the full-scale invasion started last spring. The problem is that the Russians have got much, much more artillery, which is the kind of key determiner in this war. And of course, you don't have to be a military strategist to work out that if this imbalance continues into spring and early summer, then the Russians will be able to roll forward. In the past week, Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, has been on a charm offensive, visiting the US and talking to European leaders to persuade them that they should continue to help his country in a war that still looks nowhere near won. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, can Ukraine raise the money it needs to keep Russia at bay? Dan Saber, you're The Guardian's defence and security editor. I want to start with a question that may sound very obvious, but in reality, it's a bit more complex. Why is it costing Ukraine tens of billions of dollars to defend themselves in this war? 
Ukraine's central problem is it's a much smaller country than Russia. It's got a pre-war population of 45 million against Russia's three times as much or so, 145 million, I think, from memory. And so wars are, of course, inherently expensive. It's up against a much larger opponent with much greater resources and industrial base behind it. To fight a war, you need money and you need weapons. And guess what? Weapons cost money. Actually, on top of that, you need humanitarian support to deal with the consequences of war as well. And that also costs money. So it's costly. And Ukraine could not win the war and possibly could not even survive in the war if it was fighting on its own. And that, of course, was the original prospectus back in February 2022. But things have changed and Ukraine's had a certain amount of Western support and has been able to effectively fight into this sort of equilibrium with Russia where now the line of contact, the front line has been relatively stable for, uh, frankly, most of this year. So how much of its budget is Ukraine spending on defence now and how does that compare to what it was spending before the war? Before the war, Ukraine's defence budget is about 3.2% of GDP. One estimate by the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute has Ukraine's budget shooting up to 33.5% of GDP, an enormous sum. So that is a third, of course, yeah. uh, in 2022. They're talking about the next year's budget. Again, it's about 21% of GDP. So these are vast and unsustainable sums. And Ukraine needs um, Western military aid in order to carry on prosecuting the war on any number of levels. It needs it for all kinds of arms and ammunition, without which, frankly, Russia would start to overmatch Ukraine and begin to be able to blast its way to a sort of grisly victory, you would imagine. Yeah. So a tenfold increase, essentially, in its defence budget. Does Ukraine have any capacity at the moment to raise its own funds for that? What, what kind of state has this war left its economy in? In order to fight a war like this, Ukraine has got an army is about 700,000 strong. And these are people who, at least 500,000 of whom, would ordinarily be in the economy doing regular jobs. And here they are fighting a war where they've got to be paid by the state, whereas previously they might be generating money and, and hopefully then economic activity and, of course, taxes for the state. So you're in a situation where Ukraine is financially and militarily dependent on the West and has no other choice and no other option, even though it is a relatively large country, particularly by European standards. Dan, the US is second only to the European Union in how much money it's sending to Ukraine. It's already sent more than $75 billion. And Joe Biden had another $61 billion marked out. But recently that's been held up. Why is that? Why is it being held up? EU aid is primarily financial, to some extent humanitarian. US aid is primarily military aid. And the reality is, barring an extraordinary set of heroics by European countries, that if the American tap turns off tomorrow, then within a few months, Ukraine has got a serious problem and arguably would be really struggling to prosecute the war. Till now, we've had sort of American willingness to provide funds and help Ukraine with military aid. But of course, the American system is such that whilst the president might have aspirations, it's Congress that has to approve budget requests and so on and so forth. And there has come a point, and we're essentially at that point, give or take, where the amount of money that Congress has authorised has run out and the White House wants to authorise more money and they want to authorise a big sum of money now so this doesn't get in the way of election year and all the craziness that will happen in American election year. Congress needs to pass supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for the holiday resources. Simple as that. So 
what the Biden administration has wanted to do is authorize a blockbuster foreign aid package. I think it's $111 billion at the moment, of which the largest single portion is $61 billion for Ukraine. But as the war has gone on, as Ukraine's counteroffensive has faltered, what you've begun to see is a crisis in Congress where the Republicans are starting to say, we don't want to see all this money spent abroad on national security when we could be spending it on national security at home and around US border security on the southern border with Mexico. And they're saying that should be the focus. Reality is that the House is not going to take up a Ukraine bill unless it includes securing the border uh, to the level that existed under the three prior presidents. Is Joe Biden going to have to just compromise in order to get this whole package through? It's looking that way. What we've seen is an intense period of negotiations in the run-up to this. And then we saw this extraordinary development, President Zelensky flying over to the US on Monday. Well, Mr. President, welcome back. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the White House. Thank you so much. And the Oval Office. And uh, it's great to be at your side once again. We're going to stay at your side. And I think what came out from that was that Zelensky didn't appear to make much progress on the face of it. The Republicans were digging their heels in. But on the other hand, maybe, maybe he softened some of the kind of in principle opposition to the idea of funding Ukraine. And certainly some of the key US figures like influential Senator Lindsey Graham were sort of saying, look, this is not a row about you. This is about the border package. So the noises from the Republicans seem to be predominantly about if you give us what we want, we'll give you what you want. Classic US politics. And I think although no deal has been reached as we head towards Christmas. Negotiations are still going on. And so there's a slim possibility it can happen before Christmas. I suspect it's more likely to happen early in the new year if it's going to happen at all. But the point is that everyone is still talking behind the scenes. So does it look like Joe Biden's going to make the compromises to get this across the line? I think from this distance, instinctively, it feels like it does. Clearly, the White House sees defending Ukraine as strategic. And the US would have a fantastic amount to lose if Ukrainian forces went into reverse gear and Russia started threatening its major cities and there was a possibility of a breakthrough in the front line. So you think there's still as much passion for defending Ukraine as there was towards the start of this conflict? I mean, just watching that footage of Zelensky on his recent trip to Washington. President Zelensky, what did you tell lawmakers who don't want to fund your fight? We spoke about a lot of different questions. Uh, The mood just felt so very different to the first time he visited when he was greeted as this hero. No, I don't think there is the passion. That's the reality of it. But long wars don't generate passion. They're exhausting. Wars don't operate in narrow, shortened attention spans in a wheel of an area of social media and 24-hour news. And you want things to be sort of moving back and forth on the front line daily, even hourly. And that's not been the reality of this war. This is a World War I-style conflict. Um, The front line hasn't moved very much. Ukraine has not been able to break through the Russian lines. It's gained sort of almost trivial amounts of territory, maybe 10 kilometres or so in the areas that it's made any progress. This poses a kind of fundamental medium-term problem for funders, for backers, for Kiev and for everyone. Okay, so let's talk about European Union funding to Ukraine, which is absolutely crucial. The European Union's been sending tens of billions to Ukraine, but the latest tranche of that aid has also been held up. Can you just explain why? The problem the EU has, of course, is depending on the issue, it has to proceed on a kind of basis of unanimity. And the problem it's got is that you've got Viktor Orban in Hungary. 
Now, Mr. Orban is perceived as one of um, Vladimir Putin's closest allies in Europe. In fact, he's the only EU leader who has met with Putin face to face in the past year. We've just had this summit and there were two things on the table in the summit. A vote on whether to allow Ukraine to proceed to the next stage of accession talks, its goal of being a member of the EU. And Orban was threatening to hold that up and also a related aid package. Rather memorably, I think it was Chancellor Schultz persuaded Orban to pop out the room and have a coffee when they took the vote on EU accession. Um, so he was able to abstain over a cappuccino. But then perhaps to show that he could still be a troublemaker and still have influence, he then blocked the aid package and, you know, forcing another round of negotiations. European Union leaders have failed to reach an agreement on a new financial aid package for Ukraine, which remains blocked by Hungary. And I think the scenario here is not wholly dissimilar to the scenario with the Republicans in the US. In other words, the financial demands of supporting Ukraine whether in the US or in the EU, are such that minorities or individuals wanting to use that as leverage, wanting to basically oppose them to get what they want, are able to do so. This is clearly going to be the new reality, and people are going to use this for political leverage, and it's going to make these things more complicated as this war goes on. You mentioned that there are also talks ongoing about the possibility of Ukraine joining the EU. They've obviously been trying to grow greater ties with it over decades, but in recent years, that kind of discussion has been ramped up. How close are they to actually becoming part of the EU? These are long discussions and they're for the long haul. I mean, of course, Ukraine would like to join both the EU and NATO. But uh, A, these are slow and difficult negotiations. Um, you, you know, Ukraine's economy operates on a different basis. It's a country with fantastic potential, but it is to some extent poorer. It's obviously from the former Soviet Union. It has this large agricultural sector. It's got some fantastically productive grain fields, sunflowers, and so on and so forth. But it's also able to produce a lot more cheaply because of low labor costs and economies of scale. And of course, that's caused problems in other Eastern European nations, traditionally used to perhaps receiving funds from the EU. And suddenly a country like Ukraine would be eligible for more subsidies, but also has some sectors where it could compete exceptionally effectively, maybe rather too effectively, particularly with certain electoral bases that will prop up certain political parties. So there are a lot of economic complexities that would make it a slow process, still arguably perhaps easier than joining NATO, because if Ukraine joins NATO tomorrow, does that mean that the West is at war with Russia? And how do you tackle that? But these economic issues are clearly not trivial, and whilst they can be negotiated over a longer period of time, it will be a slow process. So while these discussions have been going on in the EU, in the US, in Russia, Vladimir Putin last week held his media conference. It's a huge four-hour-long extravaganza. He cancelled it last year, but he was back this year. How did he frame in that the way that he feels this war is going for Russia? Well, I think the crucial point here is that Putin felt that he was back. The fact that the annual press conference didn't happen a year ago told its own story. And I think at that point, Putin looked rather weak and even vulnerable. In September of last year, of course, Ukraine had staged this lightning counteroffensive in Kharkiv province, and it was not really the environment for a press conference. And of course, six months or so later, we had the you know, Brigosians failed mutiny. So once you got past this period of Russian stability, 
you got into a world where actually Putin looked in a much more stable situation. Suddenly, reverses on the battlefield have been very limited. He's able to come out and give this press conference. He's got an election of his own. I mean, he's going to win the election, but he's got an election of his own next year. So he's mindful of that. But what was really interesting was that what did Putin say? He said what he's always said that he wanted Ukraine to be denazified, demilitarized, and neutral status. I remember what we talked about about denazification of Ukraine, about demilitarization, about her neutral status. Demilitarization means not only no forces, but not a member of NATO. Neutral status emphasizes the point, almost certainly not a member of the EU. He wants a weak client state on his borders, and that's probably what Vladimir Putin's been trying to achieve all along in this war. Putin's position is unchanged from the start of the war he's confident again he's back on television again and he's starting to say look i'm in it for the long haul and of course that is what putin's goal will be run this war through 2024 let's see what 2025 brings so a lot of our discussions up until now have actually been about funding for 2024 in reality certainly the back half and into 2025 putin's thinking further ahead than that he's hoping for a trump victory and that's what his appearance at the press conference was all about just a reminder that he's not going anywhere he faces at the moment relatively few internal threats and fewer than he did six to nine months ago if that isn't a wake-up call for the western ukraine's backers then I don't know what is. And Russia has the huge financial reserves to continue fighting this war for several more years, does it? What Vladimir Putin's done is successfully reoriented Russia onto a war economy. And I think there was some hope, you know, initially that the West could agree a lot of economic sanctions on Russia and that would kind of effectively strangle its economy and make it very hard for Russia to prosecute the war. Now, the reality is that Russia is now spending about 6.5% of GDP on its military, a large but not unsustainable number, although it will mean less spending on other state activities. Russia's been able to ramp up shell and munition production effectively. So, for example, it's now able to produce 100 long-range missiles a month and able to continue to resource soldiers on the battlefield. So Ukraine can't manage these kind of levels on its own. It needs that Western support. So Putin has reoriented Russia in such a way that it can fight Ukraine and do so on a full-time basis for the foreseeable. Coming up, what will happen on the battlefields if Ukraine doesn't get the funding it needs? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. 
It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Luke, when you were out in Adivka in the east of Ukraine talking to soldiers on the front line, what kinds of things were they saying about President Zelensky? How are they feeling towards him and his government at the moment? I haven't heard any whispers of dissent or criticism from people on the front line. I mean, I think what can be said is that politics is back in Ukraine. There was a moment last year when Volodymyr Zelensky was probably the most sort of fated person on the planet. And I think... He's a former actor and something of a showman, but using his performative skills, he raised morale. He did an astonishing thing, which was when it looked like Russia was going to take Kiev and he would have been executed if that had happened, he stayed in the Ukrainian capital. And really his sort of public diplomacy has been essential to getting support from the West. The problem now is that the international coalition, which has been supporting Kiev, is looking more fragile. The aid package to Ukraine in Congress has been blocked by Republicans for now. The EU has got spoiler countries like Hungary, possibly Slovakia as well. And it's unclear, you know, what this means for the longer term. And also the other thing is that, in theory, Volodymyr Zelensky is supposed to hold elections in spring presidential elections. He was elected by a landslide in 2019. Mm. But because of martial law, it looks like that is not going to happen. But I sort of think... Without some outlet for frustration that people feel, probably Zelensky will become increasingly unpopular. But for now, I would say that most Ukrainians support him. They recognise elections are impossible and they realise it's going to be a long haul. You talked about frustration. Can you just pick that apart for me a little bit? You know, the, the counteroffensive failed. How are people feeling more broadly in Ukraine about the way this is going? Are they frustrated about the slow progress? I think everyone is exhausted. That's the thing to stress. I mean, Ukrainians, they're just like you and me. And actually, the strange thing is they don't want to read about the war either, even though it pervades everything. I mean, you look at Ukrainian Netflix and the stuff that's popular is fantasy and romance and comedy because actually there's only so much grim reality you can bear. And on top of the sense of exhaustion is grief, so many Ukrainian soldiers have been killed, boys practically of 21, 22, 23, with the whole futures ahead of them are either being killed or coming back mutilated or injured or without a leg. And everybody's been personally affected by this. I mean, last year when I talked to my Ukrainian friends, they all knew people who were fighting. Now they've all been to funerals. Now they all have friends who've died. I met one guy this week and he said that 10 of his friends have been killed. 10. And this is the problem for Ukraine. I mean, Putin's strategy is to grind out victory, to 
wait for the Western coalition to fall apart and to move forward. He's planning on a war stretching into next year, 2025, 2026 and beyond. The problem is that the price Ukraine is paying for its freedom, for its sovereignty, for its right to exist is getting bigger and bigger every week. If the money that Zelensky has been campaigning for from the US and from the EU, if that doesn't come through, what's that going to mean for the people on the front? How long can they hold out without that? I mean, already Ukraine has moved, I think, from a strategy of trying to go forward which it did for much of this year, pretty unsuccessfully, on land at least. I mean, Ukraine did better at sea, where they've actually reclaimed control of much of the Black Sea, thanks to drones and clever technology. But I think what it means is that there's zero prospect of Ukraine seizing the initiative next year. It's going to be all about defence. And it's very hard to hold the line when, for every one shell you fire, the Russians fire 10 back. So we'll have to see. I mean, there's been no strategic breakthrough by the Russians the last major city they took was Bakhmut, which was already rubble. After a year-long siege, they took it in May. I don't think they're going to take Avdiivka immediately. It's very well defended. There are extensive Ukrainian fortifications. But probably, if military aid drops significantly, then Avdiivka will fall. And I think Putin will try and roll forward across the east. That's his target, is eastern Ukraine. Luke, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Luke Harding, and before him, Dan Saber. Thank you to both of them. And I really recommend going to theguardian.com and reading Luke's report from Adiv Kerr, which has been illustrated so poignantly with photos from Alessio Mamo. Luke's also written a book called Invasion, Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival, which you can get now from The Guardian Bookshop or wherever you get your books. And while you're here, I'd love you to get involved with the Guardian and Observer charity appeal. It's something we do every year to support brilliant causes across the UK. And last time we raised £1.5 million thanks to you, our listeners and readers who were so generous. This time we're going to be splitting the donations between three charities that help refugees and asylum seekers. Refugee Council... Refugees at Home and NACOM. I know money's tight for lots of people at the moment. But if there's something you can give, just go to theguardian.com forward slash donate. Thank you. That's it for today. I'm Hannah Moore, and this episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles and Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo, and the executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.